So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, we're in chapter 20, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So Acts and 2 Corinthians, we'll start out um, in verse 32 of Acts chapter 20. So I know that many of you have got those quote boards in your home. Oh, sorry, I wanted to just say hello to Carl and Kirsty uh, Johnson. Guys, welcome. Carl, uh, sorry, mate, would you guys mind just quickly standing? Um, if you have been involved in any counseling ministry here at Sterling, Carl's the one who came into training for us. Uh, they're from Jubilee on staff at Jubs in Cape Town, one of our friends' uh, churches over there with their beautiful two daughters who are here with us. Guys, welcome. Great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, they've been working closely with Pierre and Elaine and uh, helping uh, us to become a church that cares and pastors um, each other. Uh, so um, we're reaping much fruit from what Carl has sown into our ministries. So back to this one, quote boards. Uh, some of you got those quote boards in your home. We've got some in our home. Here's one that you hear quite a lot. Live simply, love generously, care deeply, speak kindly, leave the rest to God. Have you heard that one? You know who said that actually? It wasn't Hallmark. Actually, it was Ronald Reagan, the president. Not of our country, of America. All right, so Ronald, previous president of America. Ronald Reagan, live simply, love generously, care deeply, speak kindly, leave the rest to God. Another statesman said it like this. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Think about that. Winston Churchill. Here's one from the greatest statesman of all time. He said, for I so loved the world that I gave my one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's God. Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. Paul's writing to, or this is Luke's account. Luke's writing about Paul's um, last experience with the Ephesian elders. They are aware that he's uh, going to die and uh, they come to say goodbye to him. They meet on the beach and it's at Miletus and they, they weep together. He had planted the church about four or five years before and now these men were leading the church. He had already written a letter of Ephesians to them. He had he'd written to their pastor, Timothy, and, and now he meets with them and, uh, on the beach and he's about to give them some instructions and just say, guys, we're not going to see each other anymore. And I wonder what would you say to elders of a church if you knew you were not going to see them anymore and you planted the church? What, what would you say? Maybe you'd say something like, hey, I want you to know, don't forget to preach the word every Sunday. It's really important, and it is. Don't forget to preach the word. What else would you say? Maybe you'd say, I want you to remember, and don't forget to have good times of worship. Some of you might say, I want you to remember, don't neglect the serving of coffee after the services. <laughs> Some of you might, say, you might say, hey, don't neglect the offering. The church needs money to live. What would you say if those were the last things? Well, this is what Paul says to this church. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. I commend you to God and the word of his grace. These two things. This is what I want to, I want to give you to this. The word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, those who have put their trust in Christ, God's word builds them up. And I want to commend you to God, and I want to commend you to his word. There's two things you need to focus on here. You need to focus on God, and you need to focus on his word. And then it's almost as if, as Paul's speaking to them, he, he kind of he trips over his own words and falls into another side thought, and then he comes back in again. Because you'd expect him to now go into explaining what it means to, to delve into God's word and, and to teach God's word. But that, no, that's not what Paul does. 
Paul says this, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Really? Paul, that's what you come with after this? I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In other words, I didn't take anything from you when I served here. Instead, I worked out my own. I got my own money and I provided my own needs and also my ministry team that was with me. I paid for it all. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. Hey, Paul, there's two things I want you to know. Church, there's two things. Elders, there's two things. I commend you to God and to the word of grace. The word of grace is code for the gospel. Right? It's not... When we read it, we're like, oh, the word of grace, that must be the whole Bible. No, remember, the Bible wasn't finished then. The word of grace is code for the gospel. Whenever you said the word of grace or words of grace or uh, I commend you to God's grace, the, 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 the person hearing it would understand the gospel. This is the gospel. This is, that's what this is. There's two things I want you to know, God and the gospel. But then he says something very important about that. As he leads out of that, it's not the gospel means something. And it means this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's leaning into something. It's got to do with generosity. He's got, it's a way that he lived his life. It's a generous lifestyle. And then he writes to this church in Corinth. And the Corinthian church was a total mess. And they were, they were messed up in the way that they worshipped. They were messed up in the way that they related to each other. They were messed up in the way that they ministered in the gifts. And Paul was trying to get this right. He writes the book of 1 Corinthians to them and deals with this all in chapter 12, 13, and 14. And now he writes another letter to them, 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you're in 2 Corinthians. And we're going to look at verse 7. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7. Paul says, but since you excel in everything, imagine somebody writing a letter to you. This is a job, uh, an appraisal, and your boss comes in and he says to you, well, since you excel in everything, and it's not sarcasm, okay, it's genuineness. You excel in everything. Imagine hearing that. Then he lists what they excel in, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love. We have kindled in you. Hey, if ever you hear people saying that the church shouldn't pursue excellence and we shouldn't strive for excellence, you take them to the scripture and you go, well, Paul actually commended people for striving in excellence and for excelling in these things that they did. It is important that the church excels and goes for excellence, not at the expense of other. See, it's not an either or, it can be both. Excelling doesn't mean that we should neglect relationship. But why not excel in relationship as well? So we should excel in the way that we worship. We should excel in the way that we prepare sermons. That, that as I'm preparing sermons, I should try to do better this week than what I did last week. Why? For my own sake? No, for the sake of Christ. This is God's word that I get to preach to you every Sunday. Excel in that. Excel in your attendance of small groups because the Bible says, don't neglect meeting together. Let's excel in that. Or excel in pastoral care and how we care for people. Excel in that church. That's what we're called to do. Some of us will go like, nah, churches don't really have to excel. But actually, we all think they should. No, you don't. Don't strive for excellence, man. It's, you know, it's all about grace and, you know, 
Well, let's imagine that we're lying on our deathbed in a hospital. And, and, and there we are, and there's no family with you, and you're alone. And the pastor of the church arrives to see you on your deathbed. And you're going, someone has come to see me. And the pastor walks into your ward, and you're blessed enough to have a private ward. And he goes, hey, John. Hey, man, how's it going? Heard you're a bit sick. Man, I just wanted to pop in and say, how's it? I've got to go see some more people. Anyway, see you later. Bye. And leaves. There's not a person in this building who would be happy with a visit like that. You'd want somebody to come up to you and hold your hand. You'd want some touch. You'd want someone to ask you how you're feeling. Do you fear the next chapter that will happen after you close your eyes and breathe your last? You'll want to know that someone's had that conversation with you. You'll want to know that someone has prayed with you. You'll want to know that someone is saying, I will look after your family and make sure that they're okay. You will want to know those things. So the person who comes to visit you in that situation better excel in pastoral care. Because it's not good enough. In that stage, no one in this building is going, ah, oh, well, you know, I just give the guy grace. No, 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 we want to excel, guys. We want to excel. We want to do our very best. It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect because there's a big difference. Paul doesn't say you're perfect in these things. He says you excel in them. And excel means you aim to get better and better every time you do it. Okay? Recognizing we're never going to be perfect. That's, that's what it means. So then he says this. After you excel in these things, see to it that you also excel in the grace of giving. Gosh. See that you excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, Paul says. I love Paul. Like, I'm not commanding you. You don't have to do this. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Seriously, Paul? Yeah, yeah, seriously. This is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say to you, Jack and Jill, I, I want you to give. We're going to take up the offering now. Um, we're going to take up the offering, and I want you to give. But I want you to know you don't have to give, Jack. You know, you really don't have to. But I want, I'm telling you this because I want to test the sincerity of your love. So when your wife gives, I'm going to see how much she gives. And then I'm going to compare it to how much you gave. And uh, then I'm going to see if you really love Jesus by how much you gave. But this is not a guilt trip. And I'm not commanding you. That's Paul. You've got to just thank the Lord that Paul doesn't take up the offering in our churches. This is like a guilt trip every single time. But that's not what his aim is. He says, I want to compare it to the earnestness of others. Why? Because, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to compare how much you give because you already know the one who gave the most. I want to see how much you love because the one who gave the most loves you. So I want to see, does your, does your mouth match up with your hands or not? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that through his, your, sorry, through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, if you're new to church, let me tell you what that little piece means. The gospel is that God became man, died on a cross so that you and I could have a relationship with him. That Jesus comes from heaven. The Bible says that the whole universe is his footstool. Everything is created through him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and yet he chooses to become a man, born to a carpenter and seen as their illegitimate child. He's born into poverty. He grows up. His brothers and sisters call him mad. The Bible says there is nothing in him that would attract you to him at all. He'd just be some normal oak. Who lives for 33 years, dies on a cross, and impacted his world so much that 2,000 years later, he's impacting yours. 
whether you believe in him or not, he is impacting your world today. That's pretty outstanding if you ask me. And whose lives are you going to be impacting in 2,000 years' time? Who's going to remember your name in 2,000 years' time? Anyone? Anyone going to remember the town you were born in in 2,000 years' time? And that's with WhatsApp and Facebook and all those things. Jesus didn't have any of them. He leaves the wealth of heaven and comes to the poverty of earth so that in our poverty, we might experience the riches of heaven and we might know God. Friends, I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning. We want to just explore this idea of generous living and what it looks like. It's so important as we launch out of the blocks here for you to know this is not about we want you to give more money. This is not us saying as a church, hey, we're going to take up another offering and we're going to, this time we're sending around buckets, okay? Right? If you come from a church that does buckets, that's fine. But we're not going to do that. We're not going to ask for plates. We're not going to hand our plates either. And we won't even send our bags around again. That's not what this is about. This is so much bigger, friends. This is about generous living. This is about living lives that are full of generosity. Why? Here we go. Point number one. Generous living reflects the gospel. That's why. Paul says, and now I commend you to God and the word of grace. The word of his grace. The gospel. This is it. The gospel is that God became a man in order to live a life that you couldn't. In order to pay a price that you could not. In order to give you a life to live that you should not. That's the gospel. Friends, this grace that comes to us is always delivered through generosity. God is so generous with us that he gives himself to us. That's grace. We didn't deserve it. And that gift of grace comes through the conduit of generosity every single time. And so if the gospel is delivered to us through generosity and Jesus' life is all about generosity, then so should our lives be about generosity. If we call ourselves Christ followers, we are meant to display lives that are full of generosity. The gospel is the good news that we can relate to God as friends. A friendship that is initiated and made possible by grace. See, humanity didn't know relationships that were, that were around the issue of grace. Humanity only knew relationships that were transactional. And a transactional relationship says, you do X and I'll do Y. That's a transactional relationship. Jesus comes into the scene and he says, I'll die on the cross. And you get to experience eternal life. And you get to know me. And you get to be called a child of God. And you get to be forgiven. All you have to do is just go, I've got it. I've got it. You don't have to crawl on your knees up Mount Everest. You don't have to cut yourself so that he sees how much pain you bear for him. Just come before him and agree that with what he did was for your benefit. These transactional relationships we sometimes slip into in our own lives we slip into this transactional thing and we start to treat other people the same way. Friends, that's not the way that believers behave. We don't look at other people and go, well, you did this to me, so I'm going to do this back to you. No, no. A grace relationship goes, you hurt me, I'm going to give you grace. You disappointed me, I'm going to give you grace. That's how believers work. That's how we operate. You know why? Because we disappoint and hurt Jesus every day. Yet he continues to lavish out grace on us. Pour it out on you and pour it out on me. So say, God, praise your holy name that you don't enter into a transactional relationship with me, but you entered into a grace relationship 
with me, a generous grace relationship with me. And then Jesus, he puts into words what he's just done. And here's the words that he puts it into. He says, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. Think about this. I was amazed at this thought this week. It's not mine. I was listening to a sermon by Tim Keller. And he was saying this. He says, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. He said, I want you to think about this. Jesus had everything in the whole universe except one thing. There was one thing that God did not have. You know what that was? Your soul and mine. So Jesus gave up everything for the one thing he didn't have, and that's you and me. He gave up heaven. He died on a cross. He gave up himself. He gave up his strength. He gave everything away so that he could have a relationship with you. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. And Jesus took all of his treasure and threw it straight at you and straight at me and showed us that's where his heart is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to the world. So we look at that in our own lives and we go, man, this compass of giving, the needle points, and the needle points to what's an idol in your life and an idol in mine. That's what it does. Where your treasure is, is where your heart is. Where does that needle point for you? So glad I can use Tim Keller's example, not mine. It's very close to mine, but this is Tim Keller's example. He says this. He says he realized when he was reading this that he has some idols in his life. And I could claim these for myself as well, but then it would be plagiarism. So this is Tim Keller's story. He says this. He says, I discovered that I do have some idols in my life because it's much easier for me to go and buy a book than it is for me to give money to the poor. It's much easier for me to buy a whole new set of commentaries than it is for me to give money to my church for whatever it's doing. This is Tim Keller. You know why he says that? He says that it, it showed me where there was an idol in my life. And the idol was this. I like to be the authority. I like to be seen as an authority on various Christian topics. I want to be the one who has the answers. So I like to buy books to have the answers so people can come and find the answers from me. Okay? Now that is exactly me. Just I'm... Being honest with you, that's me. But I'm calling it out to Tim Keller, otherwise it would be plagiarism. So it's Tim Keller today. But let me ask you, what's the thing that the needle points at in your life? Where do you throw your money? Where would you rather give? And if you've got, when you come to that time of the month where you're deciding how much you're going to give, uh, how much you're going to give to the Lord, and your choice is that or a new pair of running shoes, where are you going? It's that or this new thing for my mountain bike, where is it going? It's that or the new installment I have to pay on my car. Where's it going? It's that or the new cell phone. Where's it going? It's that or away for the weekend. Where's it going? Where's it going, guys? It's that or a TV that's about three more inches bigger. Where, where's it going? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. The needle indicates what could be an idol in your life and what could be an idol in mine. And let me just say, we, we all have them. I lay, on, lay hold of Jesus. It's great gospel. I come before him and say, Jesus, I want to take that idol off the throne of my life and I want you to be there. I want to, I want to repent of my sin and say, I don't want to do it this way. I want to do it in a different way. Jesus, would you come and would you be the king of my life? I want to rip the treasure where I've thrown my treasure. I want my heart to be where you are, so I want to throw my treasure into that. So Jesus, would you be king of my life? Get on the throne in my life. I'm going to get off the throne in my life. 
Friends, that's what it means to cross the line of faith, where you come before him and just say, God, I want to give my life to you. I want to ask you to forgive me. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for giving up the wealth of heaven for the poverty of earth so that through this poverty of earth, I can know the riches of heaven. That's the gospel. When I take these gifts that God has given me and I use it in generous service of others, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 says it like this. It says that we deliver God's grace in its various forms to others. I want you to just think about that, that as you are generous to others, you become the courier of God's grace. Specifically, speaking about spiritual gifts, these manifestations of grace, that when I use what God has given me for the benefit of others to make a difference in other people's lives, I become the courier of grace. That grace that's delivered through generosity, as I become radically generous for others, God's grace gets poured out on others around me. Second one that we want to have a look at is this. Generous living is the priority for the Christ follower. Generous living is the priority for the Christ follower. If you want to know, hey, I'm a Christ follower, what's my priority? Well, it's, is it for me to, to tell other people about Jesus? Well, without generosity, you're never going to take the time to tell other people about Jesus. See, you will never be generous with your time. You'll never be generous with the news that, hey, you know what? You're standing on the threshold of hell and the news I've got to give you can get you into heaven. Let me, let me be generous with that news. If, without generosity, you can't do that. See, generosity is the priority for the Christ follower. The Bible says that we're to excel in this area. Paul talks about this as excel in giving, but we know that he's not just talking about that. He wants us to excel before that. He talks about excelling in other areas as well. I want you to excel in this area. Like we try to excel in other areas of our life fitness. We try to excel in relationships. We try to excel in academics. You try to excel in your marriage. You try to, hey, Paul's saying, I want you to excel in this area of generosity. I want you to flex that muscle. So he wants us to excel. Secondly, Larry Poole says it like this, because when I hear this stuff, I start to go, oh my goodness, I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible about being generous because there's one person I love being generous to other than my wife, and that's me. I'm like, Matt, today is just a you and me day. I want to be generous to you. Today, I'm going to go and buy you a Friesland milkshake. That's what I'm going to do today. I know we don't have money for this, but I'm going to do it just for you because I love you, Matt. Do you guys ever have a conversation like that with yourselves? No? No? Oh. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Okay. Thank you for your generosity there, Law. Right. And so I'm like, I'm terrible at this. How do I fix this? I came across this once reading um, some of Larry Poole's work. He says this. It, it's like a muscle that you develop. And he says it starts out like this. It's just a job. Being generous is just a job. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's giving finance, whether it's helping people, whether it's serving, whatever it is, it's just a job. And you see these guys who wear these black shirts around the building and they help us with hospitality and some of them are deacons and they, they make sure that you've got great coffee and, 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 and it's super exciting the first time you do it. It's like, woohoo, I'm part of a new team. I'm going to serve coffee over here. But it actually gets terrible after the third person's asked you, where's the sugar? And you're like, oh, it's on that table over there. What table? I don't know, the silver table next to you. Turn around. Look, there on the table. There, oh, there it is. You should put it over here. Everyone's got a brilliant idea. You know, just do it my way is all you want to say. And it's just a job. That's, it becomes a job. You don't, I don't want to do this. It's just a job. 
But the more you do it and the more you understand that this is about you being generous with your time, the more it becomes a habit. And you're like, no, just do it. Person taps on the Excuse me, where? Oh, it's on the silver table. Let me show you where it is. Here's the silver table. Oh, thanks. How did you know I wanted the sugar? Yes. How did you know that I wanted the sugar? Oh, you know, just have been doing this for a while. Excuse me, where do I get coffee? Your coffee's over here. I notice there's only coffee. I want tea. Tea? It's over here. We have tea as well. Tea's over there. Right? It's in the corner. It's around the corner. We don't associate with those people in our church. <laughs> and it becomes a habit. And it's something that you enjoy doing. And so from being a job to being a habit, it moves to being a priority. And now you find yourself being offered a holiday away for the weekend. And you're like, no, no, I serve coffee that weekend. I can't do it that weekend because I'm prioritizing it. The team says, hey, let's get together. And it's a Sunday off, Saturday afternoon. And you're going, oh, my goodness, the Bulls are playing. And you're like, oh, that's South African rugby. Who cares? And then you go, no, no, I want, I want to come. I want to be with that team. And so you get together on a Saturday afternoon. Who does that? Saturday afternoon, you're going to get together with some people who talk to you about serving coffee. Don't you know how to do that? We've all known that since we were teenagers. But why? Because you're prioritizing it. So it moves from being job to habit to priority. But then something interesting happens. After you've been doing this with generosity, it moves towards being hunger. And now you're hungry to do it. It's like Saturday night and you're thinking, I can't wait to be serving coffee tomorrow. I know some of you are like, what? Yeah, for you, it's still a job. But there are other people, when I say that, they're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm just going to go serve coffee to myself right now outside. I'm going to go serve coffee to myself. It's, they're hungry for it. And, and so you come to your place at the end of the month or wherever, and you've just been super blessed financially. You've, made a, you, you've maybe sold some more. You've got some commission or whatever it is. And, and you're like, I've got some extra money. I'm so hungry to give to the Lord. I can't wait to give. Because it's moved from being job to habit right through now into hunger. And you're hungry because now you've learned how to be generous. And you've worked that muscle. Third one is, and these speak about three areas that we need to develop. It's not just money. We develop, as I touched on just now, the muscle of time. How am I I'm generous with my time? Am I generous with my time with my children? Am I generous with my time with my wife? Am I generous with my time with myself? Am I generous in my time with my Lord? How am I doing that? Am I, am I generous with my time? Am I generous with my time and my small group or my church? You're like, oh, well, not me and my small group because I'm not in a small group. Yeah, maybe I can suggest you're not being generous then. You need to be in a small group. You need to be in a smaller group. This is a big church. You need to be in a small group so you can grow and get to know people. How can you be generous with that? Next one area where we can be, develop the muscle is the muscle of talents, our gifts, how we give. Andy Stanley says it like, these T's are not mine. Time, talents, treasure, that's not mine. It's Andy Stanley. Develop the muscle of talents. This is the place where we minister God's grace. As I use my gifts and I minister God's grace, when we come together in worship and God gives you a word and you come and bring that word and we get to share it, you've just been a career of God's grace over all of us. It's like you've just taken, if you, if you can imagine, oh, by the way, there was a, a robbery yesterday at um, Hemingway's. Many of you heard about it. If you're on Facebook, everyone's like, woo, pick and pay got robbed. Then a jewelry shop got robbed. Then a coffee shop got robbed and all of these things. But what happened was the shop gets robbed and to stop the robbery, smoke is released in the building, in that shop. Boom, the whole building's full of smoke. And then as the people get arrested, the smoke dissipates. When you come and use your gift, it's as if God's grace just comes and fills up the building. And we all just enjoy the grace of God for that moment, and then we leave together. But if you're not using it, there's nothing. 
You're like, what have I got? Well, it's not about you. It's about God's grace. But I don't know if this word is correct. I don't know if I, I, don't know if I can serve you. I don't know if I can use my gift. It doesn't matter because it's not about you or me. We just become couriers of God's grace. It's not about couriers of our grace. It's about couriers of God's grace. Here's the last one. We develop the muscle of treasure. Paul said, see that you excel in this grace of giving. Yeah, and I know I said it wasn't about money and we're not taking the offering and we're not taking an offering again. Okay, we're not. But let me talk to you a little bit about this one on giving and money and what it means. It means that it all comes from God and I'm going to be obedient and I want to be generous with my funds as well, my finances as well. In the Old Testament, God will write to the people of Israel in Malachi chapter 3. He says, will a man rob God? And they're like, what, we rob you? God goes, yeah, you rob me. How do you rob me? He says, tithes and offerings. Why? Because that's mine. Hey, you can have whatever theological opinion you like about tithes and offerings. This is the biblical truth. There is a portion of what you earn that belongs to God. Yeah, that's it. There is a portion of what you earn. For Ananias and Sapphira, it was coming to the church and saying, we have this much that's God's, but actually it was this much. Look how much we're going to give to God, but actually it was a whole lot more and they knew it. You know what happened? They died. You must know what it would have been like the next day when they took the offering. Can you imagine that? We just watched two people die because they gave the wrong amount. You're wondering, is it 10%? Is it 11%? Is it 5%? Is that legalism? Blah, blah. Here comes Ananias and Sapphira. Here, we're going to give all of this money, and they die, both of them. Hey, there is an amount of what you earn that belongs to God. It doesn't matter what percentage you want to make it. For me, I think a good place to start is 10%. I just think it's a great place to start. Start there. Start somewhere. Here's what God says. Bring the whole tithe to the storehouse. Bring my portion of what I've given to you, bring it back to the storehouse. That's your church. That's the place where you get your spiritual food from. That's the place where you're expecting them to care for you spiritually so that there may be food in my house. But then I love it. God doesn't leave it there. He says, test me in this. And at this point, some teachers of theology that you'll find on TV will move in this direction and others will move that way. Let me try to stay with what the scripture says. This is what it says. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I'll not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit. Some will take that and go, you know what? If you give one rand, God will give you a hundred rand back. And in fact, if you Facebook it, God will give you even more. Here's what God says. There's a portion of what you own that you earn that belongs to me. You need to be disciplined and give that to me. And if you give that to me, I will look after you. You choose to look after yourself or you let me look after you. That's the way this thing works. And if you're going to let me look after you, you're not going to make sense of this. But you look at it and go, you know what? I need all of this to live. I won't have enough electricity. I won't have enough petrol. I won't have enough clothes. And God's going, man, if you trust me and give me that portion, I'll make sure your clothes don't wear out as fast as they would if you kept all the money for yourself. I'll make sure that your electricity doesn't wear out. I'll make sure you don't get leaks in your pipes. I'll make sure that your car goes further. I'll make sure your tires don't go flat as fast as they would. I was thinking about this this morning. Somebody came to me the last time we did a, a teaching on giving. It was about two years ago, three years ago. Um, and, uh, and they were like, you know, um, I realized that um, you know, I don't have much to give, but I'm going to give anyway. And so I did. And, uh, and we had this rat that was in our kitchen. I can't remember who the person was who told me the story. I wish I could. They said, like, we had this rat in our kitchen. 
And it was eating its way through all of our cereal. We were throwing boxes of cereal away over and over again. And then I just, you know, I was like, hey, I need to give to the Lord. So I gave to the Lord and the rat left. Gone. Like, I can't explain that to you. And if you go, that's a coincidence. Excellent. You know, you can choose it. Is it a coincidence or a miracle? You guys choose. I was thinking about Anth and I. And um, I was wondering if I should tell you this or not. But I don't know. The house we're living in is our first house. Okay? It's our first home. We've owned no other home before that. This is our first home. And we've been living in this home for about 15 years. All right? I don't know, actually, because you don't get a manual when you buy a house. It tells you how often you must do stuff. I don't know how often you're meant to fumigate your house. How often are you supposed to do this? Anybody know? Like, is it every two years, every year, every three years? Every... We've never done it. Never, never, ever, except when we got the house. We bought the house, fumigated it, and never again. And when this person told me this thing about the rats, I was like, I mean, it's not like we don't have the odd cockroach, and we haven't had the odd rat, okay? All right? I mean, then we do, because that's the whole of East London. But never had to bring in people to do that. Never had to spend thousands to try and have my house fumigated. And I promise you, I believe that that's because of God. That's this. Because I don't have vines in my house, and I don't, you know, but God says he's going to keep the pests. He's going to keep the pests from my, from, my, from my vineyards. I don't know how God does that, but he just does. And I can't explain it to you. But in the months where I've not been able to tithe or I've, I've not done it out of disobedience or whatever, it seems like I don't have enough petrol at the end of the month. It seems like the electricity runs out quicker. It seems like I get a water bill from hell. But then in the months where I do give to the Lord, it's like, hey, man, my car's still got fuel at the end of the month. The lights are still on. I mean, it's not about weeks. But you get what I'm saying. That's how God works. God says, bring all of it in. Bring the whole thing in. Bring it to the storehouse so there can be food in my house. Randy Alcorn says this, the tithe is not the goal, it is the start. Tithing begins as a duty or a discipline and then moves into a delight from job to hunger. Test me, God says. I challenge you, church. Test him. Test him in that. You say, well, that's Old Testament stuff. Yeah, you know what? You can take any way you want it. Jesus had many opportunities where he could revoke tithing, and he didn't. Jesus, he affirms this in Matthew 23. We see him affirming giving to the Lord. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 34, we see that there were no needy people. And here it is, because the church gave more than the 10%. People would be selling their properties and bringing the money to the church so that there'd be no, nobody in need. So it's simple. You know, you either go for the 10% from the Old Testament or you go for a whole lot more in the New Testament. Maybe we should start with a 10, right? See, we, the way we handle our money is generally we'd spend as much as we can. Whatever's left, we use that to repay debt. And if we've got anything else left, we save it. And hopefully we've got something less to get, left to give. That's how we do it. The Bible works the other way around. The Bible goes like this. I earn so I can give. And then whatever's left from that, I save. And then I repay my debt. And then I spend. You go, Matt, how would you ever be able to pay back your debt? Simple. If you're only spending after you've been saving, you'll always be able to buy without debt. Simple. So we have to reprioritize things as believers and get things changed around. I thought I'd just share with you a little bit of how we are as a church. So can I be just, this is like family time. If you're here for the first time, you can now, Kyle, you guys can daydream a little bit if you want to. 
right? So if you're here for the first time, you can daydream a little bit. This is family time. We come around the table. We're going to break out our KFC here, and I'm going to talk. So this is how we are as a church. As a church, we, we make sure that we're not going to run into deficit by limiting all of our spending to what comes in, okay? So, so we don't want to run into deficit. So, so if the money comes in, it's only 50% of what we budget, guess what? We're only spending 50%. We're not spending more than that, okay? There's Shane, and he's our, our chairman of our finance committee, and he'll tell you that it works like that because he keeps telling us that it works like that too. Last year, you remember there was a massive dip. We saw on our, those who were, who were tithing online, there was a massive dip. It had been the lowest it had been in years. And we were wondering what, what had happened. We, we wondered, like, is there, is there something we need to know? Because we see people, possibly people have lost jobs. Is there a company that's closed down in the city? Or is there something we need to know about? And I spoke about this last week as well. We didn't do it very well, actually. And so people thought, well, now that money's not there, you hit us with the tithing thing. That, that wasn't the intention, and we really messed up how we communicated it. And so we, we try to re, re-explain that. But here's what we, we found from that. For, for this church, those who, who give online, right? So some, people, some of you give in the offering bag. You give your tithes and offerings, your tithes in the... Um, I'm not talking about the, your offerings, like just the 10 rand in the wallet every now and again. We're talking about intentional giving a portion of your income. That's what we're talking about. On average, for the last year, 190 people give through that online platform, right? 190. The average amount that comes through is 2,500 rand. So you can work out the maths on that. It's about 482,000 rand that comes in. In November, that, that dropped to 175. So it was 15 below the average, which we're like, oh my gosh. You could see why we were really concerned about that. Uh, so there was about 38,000 rand that was not there that normally is there. In January, it picked up a little bit by 5 to 180. And then in February, it went down. This last month went down to 171 again. So it was down by 15, then down by 10, then down by 19. The 19 means that there's 48,000 that's not there. That's on average there. By the way, this is not the reason for preaching the sermon. <laughs> All right. The reason for me explaining that to you is many people have come and asked us and said, Matt, what does it mean? I didn't know that. What, how many people do give? What, what does it look like? How much money does the church need to function? In February, the amount that was given online, uh, the 171, accounted for 87% of our income. So 87% came from 171 online tithes. In January, 79% of our income came from 180 online tithes. In December, 84% of our income came from those who were that 190, um, and, or just over 190, I think it was about 200 in December. In November, 96% of our income came from only 175 people. This is what it means for us as a church, that 190 people bring in 85% of SBC's income. 190, it's about as much as you. 190 people. You look around. It's about 190 people. But let's not forget, there's two other congregations who meet here on a Sunday and one across the city and one we're dreaming of in Cambridge West. That's, that's what that means. But those 190, they don't only bring in 85% of our income. They only contribute 62% of our budget. So when the budget isn't reached, the dreams can't be achieved. That's what it means for us as a church. As a church, we will have in our services about 680 or 700 people on any given weekend. 
That's conservative. There's 1,300 different people who worship here every month. So if you're giving, I'm saying to you, well done, guys. This is what God is doing. He's taking a little and he's using it for much. If you're not yet there, it could be because you've just come to know the Lord and you didn't know about the generosity factor and what that means to trust God like that. Perhaps, perhaps you're here visiting another, from another church or you've just moved into the city and you're trying to find your feet. Take all the time you want to. But if you're going, man, you know what? I want to settle in here. This is mine. One of the ways that we settle in together is we go, you know what? I'm going to be generous. This church wants to be generous. I want to be generous. That's the finance side. So let's move out of that and talk about some of the fruit of this, and I'll wrap it up very quickly on this one. The fruit of generous living means this. One is that generosity, or generous living, counters greed. Think about this. The more generous you are, the less greedy you become and the less materialistic you become. You become really generous with what you have because you're now practicing, it's not all mine, it belongs to God. I'm, I'm going to bless people with that. I'm going to be free. I'm not going to hold on to my stuff with a closed hand, but I'm going to hold on to what I have with an open hand. It counters greed. It also counters self-centeredness. That it's not all about me. It's not, this is not all mine, so that's self-centered living. A lack of generosity refuses to acknowledge that your assets are not really yours, but God's, Tim Keller. Generous living is the buttress against the works of the enemy in our lives. Say, Matt, how did you work that one out? Well, you see, generosity is actually an action of faith. If I'm going to be generous, it means I'm going to trust that what I'm giving out, God's going to replace. That's what it means. It means I believe that God is going to look after me. And the Bible says in Ephesians that God has given us weapons to protect us from the enemy. One of the, the, the ones that really protects us, the defensive weapon, is a shield, and it's called a shield of faith. Now, here's what I've discovered about the armor of God. Is that when we talk about the armor of God, and often when we teach our children about the armor of God, we teach it as nouns. In other words, they're things. This is, an, this is the shield, these are the shoes, this is the belt, this is the breastplate, this is the sword. And so when we teach our children to pray, they pray like this. I pick up the shield of faith, I put on the breastplate of righteousness, I put on the belt of truth, and they'll pray that prayer and then go, now I'm ready for my day and out they go. Some of you, you pray the same prayer. But have you noticed that the armor of God are not actually nouns, but they're all verbs? Witnessing, faith, righteousness, those are things you do. So for me to pick up a shield of faith means I practice faith. And one of the ways I practice faith is by being generous. When I'm generous with what I have, I'm practicing faith. And that protects me from the enemy. That's a buttress against the enemy taking me down into a road of or a hole of materialism. Wrapping down, generosity is the courier that delivers um, our spiritual gifts to one another, builds up this church, the church, and brings glory to God. That's what generosity does. It's a career of grace. And God has chosen you to be a career of grace. He wants you to be that. It's also the currency that we use to make deposits into heaven. I've been thinking so much about this. this uh, the currency that we use to deposit into heaven. Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust and th can destroy and thieves can come and steal. Don't do that. Instead, Store up for yourself treasure in heaven. That's Matthew's version. Luke goes on to explain how you do that. This is what Luke says. Luke chapter 12 and verse 33 says this. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your 
your heart is also. The more generous I am, the more I store up for myself treasures in heaven. Here's a thought. If the Bible says that this world that we live in is just a mist that appears for a little while and then disappears, man, are you making the most of this little mist to prepare for what's real on the other side? This is the short version. That's the, this is the trailer. That's the real one on that side. Last one, generous living experiences the rewards of God. We don't lean into health, wealth, and prosperity. This is not the prosperity gospel. But there is a reality in this where Jesus says in Luke 6.38, given it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Augustine said it like this. God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are always too full of other things. The more generous I am, the more open-handed I am to receive from God. So how do we apply this to our lives today? Is there an area in your life where you need to practice more generosity? Maybe it's generosity of time. Maybe it's generosity of talent. Maybe it's generosity of treasure. Maybe, maybe today God has spoken to you about the generosity of the gospel and the generosity of grace. And, and maybe today God knocks it into your life and he's just, maybe he's bulldozed into your life today and just gone, do you know what? I became poor so you could become rich. Now stop wallowing around in this mud and come and follow me. Maybe that's what God said to you today. Maybe God's been saying to you today, do you know what? I need you to trust me with your finance. Maybe today God's been saying to you, you want to be a part of a generous church. This church wants to be generous. A generous church means generous people. Maybe that's what God's been saying to you. Maybe you've never trusted God in this way. You're about to start the most exciting journey of your life because you can never outgive God. See, the reality is this, is this is Jesus' church. If all of us get fired tomorrow and all of our companies close down tomorrow, this church still exists next month because it's his. It's not ours. We don't make it happen. He makes it happen. But he calls us to be a part of this journey of generosity. So let's, let's live generous lives. Let's bow our heads and I'll close out in prayer. Let me give you a moment to respond to the Lord. Quick moment. What has God been saying to you today? Would you respond to him and just tell him, God, I hear you. You've been talking to me about. You fill in the blanks. What do you need to confess before him today? Perhaps it's, God, I need to confess my sin before you. I've never done that. I need to kick myself off the throne and I need you to be the king of my life. Maybe your confession is, God, I'm so stingy. I've been stingy with my time, my talents, my treasure. Maybe it's God, I've got, just got so busy. Giving used to be a priority in my life and busyness has just taken that away. So I'm going to make that a priority again. Maybe, God, I need to be generous in that relationship. I've been so transactional. I just need to be full of grace and generosity again. Father, as your people have responded to you, I pray in Jesus' name that you would pour out your grace, lavish your grace on us so we can be obedient and live generous lives like you gave us that example. Father, wherever we work, live and play, 
may we be couriers of grace. In Jesus' name. And those who agreed said amen. Amen. God bless everybody.